that how in the beginning, this kingdom of God, it doesn't just kind of come gradually, but Jesus confronts us with this kingdom of God. Perhaps we're not expecting this kingdom of God, but he presents us with this kingdom, and it begs the question, are you in this kingdom of God? And for us to answer this question, you have to first establish a couple of things. First, that there is such a kingdom and no earthly power, no nation, no, no sovereignty on this world, in this world can stand up to God's kingdom. It's that great and amazing and powerful. But secondly, that kingdom of God, Jesus says, is here. It is now and it is here in the present. That's what he says in Luke 17. He says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Did you catch that? The kingdom is here. Why? Because the king of that kingdom is here, and his name is Jesus. And now so far, we talked about how to be in that kingdom. And which, like any other kingdom, is by swearing allegiance to the king, right? That's how you're identified to a kingdom. But unlike any other kingdom, that allegiance is done by faith. By having faith in the king, faith in his work, faith in his victories, faith that Jesus did indeed come to die for sinners like you and me. Now, the past few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to receive that invitation and also some of these obstacles that can stand in the way, obstacles such as a greed, religiosity, and even apathy. And we also talked about what kingdom citizens look like after they've entered this kingdom. We went through that in the Sermon on the Mount. And now today, we're going to continue and talk about this one very important characteristic of this kingdom. And it's going to help us orient how we are to live here in this world. And it's this notion that, yes, the kingdom of God is here. It is in the present, but at the same time, it is not. The kingdom of God is present, it is here, but at the same time, it is not. And we're going to talk about the implications of this. So that's the plan for this morning, talking about the kingdom that is here, but yet not really. And then number two, uh, how we're not to live in that kingdom, and finally, how we are to live. So just the implications of that truth. So that's the plan. Let's pray, ask the Lord for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we know that your word they're not just ink on a page. We know that every word of God is breathed out by your spirit, and he has the power to bring dead bones to life. God, we confess that this morning that we are all dead. We need life. We need living water. We need your bread. God, revive in us a new heart so that we can truly be kingdom citizens. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's talk about what this means, that the fact that the kingdom is here, but not here at the same time. And so far, these past few weeks, if you've been following, I think there's a necessary conclusion that you can come to. It's this question. Here's the line of thought. So we receive this invitation. We're in the kingdom of God by faith, by our allegiance to Jesus. We receive it with utmost joy. Remember, we receive it. We sell all that we have, finding that pearl. We have this joy. But then there's this burning question. If that kingdom is true, and if that kingdom is here and now, the question is, then why is the world the way it is? 
It's a question that Christians have been asking actually all throughout history. And it's sobering because as soon as I ask you that question, why is the world the way it is, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Just to cite some examples, anywhere from the violence and shootings and and human trafficking, political, religious persecution, even natural catastrophes that we see in the world, all the evils and suffering. And we see that kind of questioning in our passage. In verse 24, Jesus, he begins this parable. He compares the kingdom of heaven like a man who sowed good seed in the field. But now, while his servants were sleeping, the enemy came and he sold weeds among the wheat, and he went away. So here, the weeds, they are the evildoers of this age, those who aren't genuine citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus, he actually identifies them pretty frankly in verse 38. He says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the devil. And it is the devil who plants the seeds of weeds and sprouts evil men throughout the world. Now, Continuing in verse 26, you see the plants come up and they bear grain, but also the weeds appear too. And so the servants of the master of the house, they came and they said to the master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? That's the question we ask. Isn't the kingdom of God here and now? Didn't you say that all the benefits of the kingdom that we have in in Jesus, if that's true, if that's the case, how come we see so many weeds in the world? How many weeds in our lives? That's the same question. It's a valid question. The kingdom of God is the way that the Bible describes it and has been ushered in by Jesus Christ. And if we, by faith, believing in his death and resurrection, we believe that death has been conquered, that Satan has been defeated, the kingdom of God is alive and in our midst, then why do we see so many horrific things in the news? And why do we ourselves experience so much of those horrific things and sufferings and frustrations of this life? Before we get to Jesus' response, There's something we need to know about this kingdom. And as I described it, we call it the already not yet kingdom. And it's a theological term, but it encapsulates what we're talking about. The kingdom of God is already hyphen, not hyphen yet. And that's the nature of God's kingdom. How is that? Why? Because already there has been the defeat of sin and Satan. Already, believers, we have died to sin, and we have been made alive in Christ. Already, we do dwell with Christ in the heavenly places, spiritually. Death no longer has power over us. Already, we have access to water that makes us never thirst again, the bread of life, so forth. Already, that's true. It is true now. It's already happened, and it's happening now. But at the same time, not yet. Not yet, because while all those things are true, now spiritually speaking, the consummation of those spiritual realities, they have not been fully realized physically. Did you get that? They are true spiritually speaking, but they have not been fully consummated physically. And you may think, well, isn't that a contradiction? How can something be already, but at the same time, not yet? So let's go over a couple examples. Let's take Satan, for example. The Bible clearly teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, 
And when he rose again from the dead, that Satan was defeated at that time, back then on the cross. So we can say and proclaim things like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It's speaking as if death and Satan has already been defeated. And what we see is that on that cross, that final knockout blow has been dealt. We always use that illustration of cutting the head off of a chicken, right? Once you cut off its head, it's going to be running around, but it is dead. You can declare it dead. And that's the case with Satan, already defeated, but not yet consummated in his defeat. Not yet consummated where he is completely lifeless and on the ground. Just to help us get this concept down, um, it's like Muhammad Ali when he delivers that knockout punch. In that famous fight with Sonny Liston, he gives what we call this famous punch called the phantom punch. It was so fast and so quick, it's like a phantom, and it literally knocked out uh, Sonny Liston. Here's a picture of that famous uh, phantom punch. And boxers and commentators, they know as soon as that punch connects, the match is done. And at this millisecond, they knew Muhammad Ali won. I know you can't see it too well. This isn't Sunny. Listen, next one. But here's another close-up shot of this phantom punch. By looking at this picture, would you say it's over? (laughs) He has won the match, right? And you can see, yes, in a sense, he won already. He's defeated his opponent, but not fully because it's not until we see this famous picture, the consummation of his defeat has been realized when he's finally over his opponent in his victory. The full 10 seconds have been counted. So do you see if the kingdom of God is like the already knockout punch being dealt, but not yet the devil, the Satan being fully on the ground consummated, we're living in between these two pictures are already not yet. But yes, you can say he's already won, but the full effects of that victory hasn't been realized. That's the already not yet kingdom that we are living in. So it is not a contradiction. You can apply this to many things. In one sense, yes, you are free from sin. Sin has no power over you. You are perfectly righteous in Christ. Yet, the full effects of that is still being consummated, still being realized. And gradually, we're going to grow towards Christ's likeness. And on that final day, we're going to see the uh, full uh, results of that justification. So there's a lot of things. We can say in one sense it's true, it's one sense it's not. Yesterday, we were at the beach, and I remember first going into the water. When our feet went into that shallow water, you could say we were in the ocean, right? But it wasn't until we tried to boogie board and we tumbled backwards and there was snot falling out of our noses and tumbleweed or seaweed in our hair. That's when we're really in the ocean, right? There's a difference, but you can still say we're in the ocean. There's a difference until the consummation of that ocean wave hits you in the face. That's what Jesus is talking about. Already not yet. And all this is why as Christians, we can consider ourselves living in between two worlds, which is the title of this message. In one sense, we are in the kingdom. One sense, we are in this world. But in another sense, the kingdom hasn't fully been consummated. We're not of this world. And also, our eternal home is a home that we haven't been to yet, gone to yet. We're in between these two worlds. 
Now, having established this, now we're going to talk about how we are to live in light of this truth. So the second point, what we're called not to do. So now establishing this, here's the question. Now, how are we supposed to live in a world where there is still suffering and evil going on? When we're in between these two pictures, how are we to live? Well, verse 27, we see. The servants of the master of the house, meaning his workers, his followers, us, they ask, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he says, an enemy has done this. Now, here's where we get what we should not do. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And to this, Jesus says, no, no. And that's simple enough in the parable. He asked, they asked, do you want us to gather the weeds and burn them up? And Jesus says, no. But what does that mean in our world, in our lives today? How does that translate? And we can see that the context of this parable, Jesus is talking about this final judgment. He's talking about this harvest. And he explains later that this harvest is the end of the age when he separates the weed from the wheat and he gathers up the weed and he will burn them in eternal fire. That's clear enough. And so for the servants to ask the master, do you want us to gather up the weeds now? They're asking that eternal divine judgment that you're planning, do you want us to kickstart that judgment now? Do you want us to start bringing that justice, that judgment now with our own hands? That's what the servants are asking. Do you want us to get a head start on this final judgment, upon the evils that we see, upon these wicked weed and wicked people. Now, I know perhaps we don't speak in such sweeping terms. I don't think many of us, you know, wake up in the morning and say, God, do you want me to get rid of all the evil in this world unless you're a superhero or something like that? But we do ask these kinds of questions. I caught myself the other day watching the news, just in my heart thinking, God, why, why can't you just get rid of all of those people who do such evil things. I even went as far as to think, God, can't we just put away all these kinds of people whom you know are going to do all of these wicked things for the sake of justice? God, won't you act now? I thought that. I prayed that. Have you? And to that, Jesus says, don't do that. No. No. Or perhaps even more personally, it's when our minds, we cross certain people off and we categorize them as being hopeless. Thinking, you know what, there's no chance that he or she is going to know the love of Christ. And perhaps it's somebody very close, you've been praying for them, but time after time you are convinced there's no way he or she is going to know Christ. And you cross them off and what you've done is you've ushered in a divine judgment on that person prematurely. We do that. Because in order for us to bring such divine justice on such people, it means this. It means that you have to know, you have to identify who are the ones that are true and genuine citizens of the kingdom of God and who are not. And we have to make that judgment. We have to make that discernment. And Jesus is saying, that's not your job. That's my job. Therefore, you cannot mark who are the weeds, who are the wheat. That job is reserved only for the master of the field. We see that clearly when Jesus himself, he's going to send his angels, and based on his justice, his discernment, he will do that final separation. 
you know, the word that Jesus uses here when he's speaking to his disciples, he's describing this weed, and it's actually a, a very particular kind of weed. It's called the darnel weed. When I first read this, the, the Philly side of me kept wanting to call it darnel, but it's not darnel. It's darnel weed. All right, get that um, ingrained in our minds. But this darnel weed actually looks very like wheat. As you can see in the picture, it's not just the darnel wheat. There's actually lots of genuine wheat in this picture. But with the naked eye, you cannot tell the two apart, especially at its young age. When it's a seedling, when it's green like this, there is no way with the eye you can tell which one are the weeds and which one are the wheat. And that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't he? He's saying if you try to separate them prematurely, you're not going to know which one's genuine wheat, which one are the weeds. You have no ability to make that distinguishment. And so that's why when you compare the two, you really can't tell. And that's why Jesus is saying if you try to pick out the weed right now, you are going to pick out the genuine wheat as well. Because the way that the weed grows, it doesn't just simply grow by itself. It has roots and it intertwines with the wheat. So in order to pull out the weed, you will pull out the wheat. But later on, when it's the time of harvest, you can make the distinction. You can tell what is the genuine wheat and what is the fake wheat. And it's not like this darnel weed. It's not like it's harmless. It's very dangerous. It's actually poisonous to all its surrounding wheat. So much that farmers, if they see even an instance of this weed in a bushel of, a bushel of wheat, they have to throw the whole batch out. So it is evil. It is painful to see. But he's saying prematurely, if you try to separate them, you are going to cause damage. You are going to uproot genuine And so what Jesus is saying ultimately is saying, you are unable to do this task. You do not have the ability and the discernment of God himself to know who are genuine ones that he's going to call and who he's going to pronounce final judgment. And for the servants to want to begin that harvest now, they're presuming that they're in God's place that they're sitting on his throne. I know what's truly evil. I know what's in the heart of this person. I know where I stand. And he's saying that is very dangerous because that's a place only reserved for the divine judge. So likewise, for us to want judgment on evil men now, on our clock, our time, it means that we're operating on our judgment and our discretion. And what's underneath such requests is us thinking we can do God's job better than he can. Because, God, you're taking too long. God, don't you see what's going on? You know what? Let me help you out, God. I'll start here. I'll start now. We've seen this in history. We've seen the Crusades, right? For the sake of Jesus, Let's establish this kingdom of God now and wipe away all those who don't believe. Believe it or not, the Reformation, you know how many heretics were burned at the stake because they had wrong theology? Even in our country, the Salem witch trials, American, Native Americans being killed for the sake of Jesus because why? They wanted to bring that divine justice prematurely. And God's saying, time's not ready yet. But more than our inability to bring in this divine justice, 
The ultimate reason why Jesus says no is because he has other plans. Jesus elsewhere in John chapter 10, he says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And hear this, he says, I have other sheep, not yet of this fold, and I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You know what he's saying? There are still those out there who don't know me, and for their sake, not yet. That's what he's saying. And that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. Because perhaps even those wicked people that we see in the news or the people that we encounter with day after day who are poisoning the wheat and causing so much pain and suffering, there are some amongst them that Jesus is bringing to himself and the work is not finished yet. And Jesus says, no. Even the people in your life the people whom you crossed off saying, there's no way they're going to know Jesus. The ones you marked off as hopeless in your eyes. There are those that Jesus is bringing into his flock. And for us to give up and to categorize them as hopeless, categorize them as evil and wicked and want to bring divine judgment upon them now in the name of Jesus, Jesus is saying, I have different plans. Because for now, the harvest hasn't come yet. For now, Jesus is more concerned about bringing such men into his field rather than separating them. Augustine, hundreds of years ago, he read this and he says this, those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. Those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow because you and I at one time, we were weeds. And I'm very guilty of wanting Jesus to come back too soon. I say it all the time. I hear it all the time, right? Only if Jesus came back right now, I wish he did, and, and, or I want to go to heaven and just leave this place that's filled with so much darkness and evil and hatred. We think that constantly. We want judgment to come. I want evil eradicated. I want the new heavens, the new earth now. But that's not having the mind of Christ in this passage. Because the mind of Christ is one who says, there are still others out there. I have to bring them in. And it's the mind that says, I do see the evil that is amongst the field and in this world. And I see how difficult those people are in your life. And I know it seems hopeless, but I have plans to bring them in. So not yet. Rick Warren's a pastor at Saddleback Church, and once he shared uh, this final night he had with his father who was on his deathbed. His father was a believer, and he writes this. The night before my father died, my wife and my niece, we were in his bedroom by his side, and dad, he suddenly became very agitated, tried to get out of his bed. And of course, he was too weak to get up, so he kept insisting he lay back down. But he kept persisting and trying to get out of bed. And finally, in exasperation, we said, Dad, you cannot get up. You're dying. We will get you whatever you need. What are you trying to do? And he goes, my dad replies, I've got to save one more for Jesus. I have to save one more for Jesus. And he kept saying, one more for Jesus. 
He began to repeat that phrase over and over, and it's no exaggeration to say that during the next hour, he repeated that phrase probably a hundred times. I have to save one more for Jesus. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because of this. Imagine yourself on your deathbed, breathing your final breath. And if there was any time where you should be thinking about heaven, if there's any time where you should be thinking about you receiving all the benefits of heaven, that's the time, right? Right before you enter into his glory. But heaven hasn't come for his father yet. And he's saying, until I'm actually in heaven, until that day, until that moment, my goal is to save one more for Jesus. Even to my final dying breath. I'm not in heaven yet. That's God's time. But while I'm here, save one more for Jesus. That's the mind of Christ. Yes, we can say and proclaim, yes, Jesus, come, Jesus, come. I say it too all the time, especially in light of the evils that we see. But yes to that, but there should be a part of us that says, not yet. My father, my coworker, those people I see in the news, not yet. We bring them into. And as soon as you want vengeance and justice, can I ask you, what are the marks of a true believer? Those who have compassion on those who are not yet in the flock or those who want to go out for the name of Jesus to get rid of all wickedness. There's more to be saved. That's the reason why Jesus says no. Second Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why Jesus is patient. He's patient towards the weed. He's patient towards evil people in the world. He's patient with those hopeless people in your life, just as he was patient with you. And just as he was patient with me, and he wasn't idle, God was very busy bringing people into the kingdom. He was at work, and that work is the cross. Because through his death on the cross, he dies for your sins so that you will not have to experience that divine judgment, not now nor in the future. And have you ever thought that cross, that divine judgment that Jesus could have put down on us, that could have happened any time could have happened before you and I came to know who he was. But he was patient because he had you in mind. And he said, not yet. Not until he or she comes into my kingdom. And he was patient towards us. Why? Because he had you in mind. The servants asked, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? And how does it have weeds? Jesus knows that the enemy is the one causing this weeds. And he has the power, he has the ability to stop it in an instance, but he doesn't because he was waiting until you and I came to know him personally. You know, a little after Jesus, right before he was to be crucified, he had the chance to stop his own suffering and death. Remember, when he was betrayed and he was going to be taken to be sent to his death, one of his disciples pulled out a sword and they cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. 
And they could have stopped. They could have started a revolt. And Jesus could have stopped going to the cross. But do you remember what Jesus says at that moment? He says this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and call upon 12 legions of angels at this instance? Think about what Jesus can do at any moment on this earth. Don't you think that God himself can come down and bring legions upon angels? But why doesn't he do that? And here's the reason. There are still those out there. That's why Augustine says, he deemed it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit evil to exist at all. That's the sovereign plan of God. And that good was our gospel, the salvation that you and I have. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and having no God in the world. Do you remember that time in your life? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off has been brought near by the blood of Christ. Perhaps you're here today and... You're not a believer of Jesus yet, and as you see so much evil in this world, you wonder why Jesus isn't doing anything about it, and perhaps I can ask you to think. Perhaps Jesus already did, was on the cross, so they could save those evil men, evil men like you and me. Consider why Jesus is being patient, because he's waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting to bring you into his flock. Let's end with this, what we're now called to do. So we've seen what we're not to do. What are we to do? So recognizing that we're in this already not yet kingdom, physically there is still much evil in this world. Now, we're not the ones to usher in this divine judgment. Now, I want to make a clarification. This passage is not saying that, you know, that we're supposed to be idle. It's not saying that. We're not supposed to be idle. We're not supposed to just talk about good things and talk about justice but not do anything about it. Nor is it saying that there shouldn't be any punishment or consequences for for evil in this world. Because there are things that we are to do, we're called to do as Christians. But we're supposed to not do it from a standpoint where we're on this divine throne, this judgment throne, and making these once and for all vindications for people. We are supposed to do these good things because God loves and protects the oppressed. God loves justice, and we're trying to imitate him. There's the clarification. So at the same time, while we do good in this world, we must never think that doing such good things, that's the ultimate purpose in our lives. And even good things such as promoting peace and welfare, providing education and resources uh, to the underprivileged, uh, underprivileged, fighting against oppressive powers, all those are good. But the clarification is they cannot be separated from a desire to win souls and not to be concerned about spiritual realm of things. We have to be concerned with the spirit, people's souls. And so at the same time, while we do these good things, We must also remember what the ultimate purpose is. You know, when I say something like this, if we say something like this in the world today, you know what the response we're going to get? We're going to get a lot of condemnation and ridicule. They're going to say, what? With all that's going on in this world, you're saying that fixing all these problems and doing good things, that's not the underlying concern that we should have, that we should be focusing on? 
And to respond to that, I want to read just a little excerpt uh, from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this in the 60s, back in London. It's very prophetic of what's going to happen in the world. He says this. This is the way that people respond to me. They say this. Why don't you tell us something about how to settle the international problems? Or why don't you start an agitation to stop the making of bombs and missiles? Why aren't you being realistic? Why don't you face the facts, the stark realities of life as it is today? Instead of talking about some unseen spiritual forces and the devil, that's nonsense. So then what are we supposed to do? For those who follow Christ, our number one priority must be about heavenly matters, the spiritual state of affairs. So that means that when you do see something on the news, you're supposed to be quick and get on your knees and pray. We of all people must be concerned about the eternal state of people's souls, even more than their physical protection, because as important as their physical protection is, their spiritual protection, which matters for all eternity, is more and more, more, more important. And so, yes, we are to do good. We are to go into the darkest places in the world and shine like stars in the universe, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Philippians chapter 2. Yes, we are to be heralds of justice when, when we see people being oppressed, to give a cup of water in Jesus' name, to show that ounce of Christ's love to the most undeserving person, even starting with your spouse, to your children, to your coworkers, to those whom you labeled as hopeless. We're supposed to enter, though, our workplaces every day with a prayer that says, God, give me one opportunity to share your love to somebody today. That's the kind of mindset we're supposed to have as we do good in this world. Both in word and deed, let me represent you well. So yes, we are to do all these things. We are to roll up our sleeves, but hear how Lloyd-Jones finishes. As we do these things, we must always start in heaven with God Then having done that, we come back to earth and we face the problems of life and living as we find them in the light of what we already seen in heaven with God. Never, never start with earth. Never start with men. Always start in heaven. Always start with God. That's what he's saying. And so verse 43 tells us that when he returns, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. If that's how we're going to be for all eternity, shining like the sun, then let's do that now. Let's shine like Christ, having the mind of Christ, living in between these two worlds by seeing more than the way things seem, recognizing that there is a waging war for people's souls underneath all the things that we see and experience, underneath the difficulties and the sufferings that you and I encounter every moment that you're tempted to give up, that there is something spiritual going on. But if we're faithful, that it's going to be worth it because Christ will make it worth it. That he will give you the Holy Spirit to help you persevere and to believe that even the smallest, even the most unnoticed act done in his name, in these dark places, in the most frustrating moments, that it will be worth it in the end. 
Now, I want to end by sharing with you this little excerpt from a book called Every Good Endeavor. And then it talks about this short story by J.R.R. Tolkien. And this short story is called Leaf by Niggle. And that's the name of the marrying character. Uh, Niggle was commissioned. He was an artist. He was commissioned to paint this great mural on the side of City Hall. And with such a big task, he spends his whole life uh, trying to create this gorgeous, robust, fruit-bearing tree to be the centerpiece of this mural. And he had this aspiration to want to inspire everyone who walked past this mural. And so he thought, what am I going to draw? I'm going to draw this fruit-bearing tree, and people are going to see that. They're going to get inspired. But as he was working on this mural, he always knew that one day he would have to undergo what he calls the necessary long journey, which is another word for the day that he dies. But before he dies, he wants to get this one mural just right for him to leave behind. So he worked on this canvas, putting a touch here, rubbing out a patch here, but he never got much done. And it says there are two reasons for this. First, it was because Niggle was the kind of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. So he used to spend a, a long time on one single leaf. And the second reason was because things would always just come up. It wasn't that he was lazy, but he would always drop his paintbrush because his neighbor would ask him for help or this other person would ask him for a favor. And one day, Niggle, he came down with the chills and fever, and he saw that his time was up, that he had to go on this necessary long journey. And right before he left, he looked back at his painting, and he saw that all he had done was draw one single leaf. Oh, dear, said poor Niggle, beginning to weep. It's not even finished. And so that painting was put on the side of City Hall. It was entitled, One Beautiful Leaf. And people would walk by it, and they would not notice it because it's just one single leaf. But the story doesn't end here, it says. After death, Niggle is put on a train toward the mountains in this heavenly afterlife. And when he gets to the outskirts of this heavenly country, something catches his eye, and he runs to it. And there it is. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind, just as he had often imagined it. You know, Tolkien, he wrote this because he himself was struggling to be faithful with what he felt God had called him to do. Because he said even on the good days, it seems like all he could do was just scrounge by and just finish one single leaf shining the light of Christ. But he's saying, but the very fact that you're doing it in Jesus' name, that it will be remembered. It will be there for all eternity. And it's going to have its value, and it's going to have its significance, not because you are this great master painter who drew this great, beautiful tree, but because that leaf that you drew, God is going to incorporate that into his master painting, the tree, and it will be worth it. So brothers and sisters, as we live in between these two worlds, the world that we see in front of us, the world that is passing away, and it's full of weeds and evil. And until we finally arrive at our ultimate home when Christ returns, until then, let us shine like the sun, living as we're already there in the here and now. And one day when Christ returns, and when he does, let us not be found wanting and cheering on the perishing of sinners, wanting justice, but let us be found wanting to save one more. 
through every single act of kindness until our dying breath. And when we do so, as Colossians 3 tells us, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after we hear God's word, we take some time just to, just to pray to God and see what he's convicting us and teaching us. And so perhaps for us, we can ask him, God, how do you want us to live in between these two worlds? Perhaps you can ask God, who are the people in my life that I'm supposed to show and share Christ's love to? And perhaps we can ask him, God, when things get hard, when I see so much evil in this world, help me to get on my knees, help me to be faithful, not because of my might or my ability, but because you will accomplish the task that you set out to do. Let's pray those kinds of prayers before we take the elements this morning.